0: It is an honor to be here this morning to uh, come and share God's word with you. And and so as I was thinking kind of what are we going to talk about, you know, for this week, um, I was already kind of thinking, what am I going to be feeling by the time Sunday hits? After having to kind of plan before Christmas, I knew really in our household, um, we start kind of dismantling all of the things that, you know, speak of Christmas inside our house, right? The tree comes down, the lights are away. Right, the the extended family has has left, and really the only reminder that we have of Christmas is the weight that we've gained. And so now, I'm left with a question. That question is, now what? Christmas is one of those odd kind of uh, seasons of the year which is an amazing uh, season of the year that we can spend nearly a month or sometimes more than a month of our calendar year kind of focusing on this one event, right? We throw special parties. We have special services. um, We uh, get together. We sing special songs. The radio kind of sometimes even changes their playlist just for the last month. And then all of a sudden the switch gets turned off. Our lives have been busy for the last month, right? We've had gatherings and shopping and school plays and traveling and all the other things that come along with the traditions of Christmas and this time of year. And as of Thursday, it's now over. And so now what? And so whether you say that question outwardly or you kind of sigh and groan when everything gets put away, you know, the question will come up. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at this time of year, it doesn't have to be at Christmas that we say, now what? Because we are such forward-thinking people that we're always looking for that next thing. We're looking forward to a vacation, we're looking forward to a graduation, we're looking forward to ending the year, we're looking forward to some big project or some next step in our lives, and then when it's over, we then ask the question, well, now what? Now what? Well, since Christmas does have that kind of big cultural theme, and it is kind of the start of the year, most people start, you know, figuring out their New Year's resolutions and whether you're one of those people or not, I wanted us to kind of look and think about these questions. Now what? What do we do with our faith? What do we do with, uh, after we've kind of been thinking about the Christ who would come after he has been born and after we have celebrated his birth, now What? And so I'm not going to help you with your, your trajectory for your career or even your exercise plans for next year, but I do want to give you three directives for an effective Christian life. And I know that kind of sounds like business seminar. I was thinking of different terms, how to turbocharge your spiritual journey or whatever. You know, you can come up with, a, I'm not a marketer, so, you know, you can come up with your, your best theme. But really, we're going to look at in scripture three ways how we are going to take what we have been blessed with, and then focus on how we can really cultivate our spiritual life. And the text that we're going to look at today is 1 Timothy 6, uh, starting in verse 13. And so you guys can turn there, and I'll give you a little bit of, uh, you know, context of the passage of Scripture that we're in. So Paul is writing to Timothy, as the letter states, And he was a guy that he picked up along his second missionary journey when he was traveling through Asia Minor, which is Turkey today. And Timothy would travel with Paul from place to place and really help plant churches and sometimes again visit churches and often Paul would send Timothy or leave Timothy in a particular city to stay and to nurture them especially when Paul was a lightning rod and sometimes when he visited a city he was ousted from the city. Timothy though could stay behind and really pour in to the churches. And so years later we see this faithful companion now at the church in Ephesus. And when you look back at the history of Ephesus, Ephesus was a, a, a church that Paul had spent several years in, pouring in, day in and day out, teaching the word of God to them. And historically, if you read the the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, um, there don't seem to be many major issues, and so we would doctrinally say that they're a solid church, that they seem to kind of have it all together. But now that Timothy is in Ephesus, we start to see maybe some problems that pop up throughout the course of a typical church, the things that they just deal with over time. And so Paul, throughout the letter, gives some practical advice and how to identify leaders, uh, how to manage pastoral difficulties, how to avoid unnecessary conflicts, and then how to challenge the people that he is overseeing. And at the end of the letter, Paul addresses Timothy how to minister to different groups in the congregation. He tells him how to treat older men and older women. He tells him how to connect with younger men and younger women. He tells them how you should treat elders, how you should care for widows, how you should uh, encourage those who are enslaved and even speaks to those that he would categorize as rich. And whether Timothy knows it or not, he is having his now what moment, right? He is trying to be faithful with his ministry duties, but he may be unsure about decisions he has to make now that he is going it alone, So Paul gives him very practical wisdom as he wraps up his letter. So Timothy can best be set up for ministry success. And so Paul tries to pump him up. In verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, I want you to fight the good fight of faith. Encouraging words to rally him and to strengthen him. And then he says, I want you to take hold of the eternal life in which you were called. And this morning, I want us to fight the good fight of faith as well. And this morning, I want us to take hold of the eternal life into which we were called. And I want us to have more of an impact for this coming year. And so these phrases are meant to reorient Timothy's thinking and to encourage him to make some bold moves. And for us, the advice that Paul ends his letter with, can be instructed to us, and encourage us as we are to do the same concerning our spiritual growth. And so what Paul says is extremely practical. And if we ask ourselves, now what? Paul answers us with three ways that we can better serve our glorious Lord, Lord and Savior. So we can fight the good fight. We can take hold of the eternal life in which we are called. And he gives us three directives for an effective Christian life. And so let's read together what those are, and then unpack them this morning. Starting in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty and not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, and storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so the first thing that we see is that uh, Paul directs Timothy, and really to us, is to guard against damaging behaviors. And that's in verses 13 through 16. And so Paul starts off by charging or really insisting that Timothy does what he advises, right? Paul Paul has said this a few times throughout the letter, and the charge indicates not only the seriousness of what is being said, but that he intends for him to do this. While all of Paul's advice should be heeded, this one in particular is of paramount importance. I don't want you to think about it, I don't want you to put it off, but I want you to do it and I want you to do it now. And Paul says he makes this charge in the presence of God and as much as Timothy would just normally respond to Paul because he is his spiritual father, Paul emphasizes the seriousness about what he is saying by invoking God and not only does he invoke God in this charge... But that he is, this charge is being made in the presence of Christ Jesus as well, right? These two witnesses are the only ones who we are ultimately accountable. Earlier in verse two, Paul tells uh, servants to honor their masters. And so again, Paul, you know, could leverage that idea that because I am your spiritual father, you could do it out of obligation or out of duty. But Paul draws Timothy's attention beyond the earthly. And he describes God in terms synonymous with the Father as the one who gives life to all things. And as such, all things are accountable to God. You and me included. And of Christ Jesus, Paul refers to as making a good confession before Pontius Pilate. It's kind of odd, you know, why does Paul refer to Jesus in this way? If I were to stop and think of all the ways that we could describe, and even reading through Hebrews 1, when you think of all the ways to describe Jesus, why does Paul say this? And of all the attributes, why does he point to the confession that Jesus made? Well, if you look back in Jesus' life, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus if he was the King of the Jews, as so many had um, said he was. Jesus responded in John eighteen thirty-seven, he says, You say that I am king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens. To my voice. So what was the confession that Jesus made? He said that my purpose was to come and bear witness of the truth and those who know the truth are drawn to me. And so Paul refers to this comp- confession because it is in this way that every believer can identify with Christ's mission. Our purpose is the same here on this earth, is to point people to the truth And that truth being Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul says that Jesus made a good confession before Pilate. He did not back down even though his life was on the line. We will see that the good confession takes more than just words alone. Because in the presence of these two witnesses, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul charges Timothy in verse 14 to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. And so what is the commandment that Paul is referring to? I want you to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach. It's hard to identify. And if you look at different commentaries, it'll identify, you know, more than five or six different things that this commandment could be. But instead of limiting it to something in particular that we can't be sure of in ourselves, if we went back to Jesus, when Jesus was asked, which are the greatest commandments? Jesus responded and he said, I'll give you two commandments. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And so if we were to think in terms of these commandments, it might help us to see why Paul says what he says to Timothy. Paul gives two directives in regards to keeping this commandment, right? He says, first, I want you to keep it unstained and secondly, keep it from reproach. So the first idea, keeping it unstained, means that the commands that were given to Paul and really to us as followers of Jesus Christ are already pure and undefiled. If you were to keep it unstained, it means that there are things that you could do that could potentially stain them or muddy them or make them dirty or unclear, And so we think of these commands as being core to our faith, then how well we do them will show how much we believe them to be central to our faith. Paul knows that behavior that does not reflect our love for God and our love for man will make others mistake its purity and therefore it becomes defiled. And so how can we say we love God and how can we say we love our neighbor but we don't show it at all, right? We're just speaking the words but not carrying it out in action and in deed. And so keeping it unstained goes hand in hand with Paul's second directive. He says to keep it free from reproach. To keep something free from reproach means to keep it free from criticism. The what, the commandment, is not as important as the why. Why we keep the commandments unstained and above reproach Paul gives clear clarity in an, one, another letter to another pastor, Titus. And So if you were to flip over to Titus 2, verses 7 through 8, he says to Titus, again another pastor, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech That cannot be condemned. That idea about that something that cannot be condemned is to be above reproach. So that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So why conduct yourself with integrity? Why conduct yourself as above criticism or above reproach? Or specifically here how he says something that you cannot be condemned. Why is that? Because those who oppose the gospel will then have nothing evil to say about you. People are looking to criticize, especially things that they believe that they cannot or do not desire to follow out themselves. And so they're looking to criticize and cut down the people who follow them. And Paul says, the best thing that you can do is you can stay out of the fray, stay above reproach, and not get engaged in endless discussions, not engaged in things that will drag you down and ultimately drag down the view of Jesus Christ. Really, Paul, if you go back to 1 Timothy 6, when he ends his letter... He says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you and avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. In other words, in other places, earlier in the letter, he says, I want you to not engage in these endless discussions because it is not doing you any good and it's not doing our Lord and Savior any good either. Paul also tells Timothy And Titus, that I want you to consider to appoint elders as those who are above reproach. Because an elder with a poor reputation can cause many to question its leadership in the church. And similarly, a a person who lives a morally questionable life makes it hard to take them serious in regards to pointing people to the truth of the gospel. Again, why keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach? The answer is simple. In order to keep a good testimony before men. And to be a positive witness for the gospel. Right, hypocrisy is one of those things that Christians are often criticized for. Right? One of the things is that we know the truth. Right? The Lord has shown us through his word how we are to carry out um, our lives. What would be honoring and pleasing to him. And the hardest thing is that when people tell others who don't follow Jesus Christ that they need to live the same way. And then when they see those who say they follow Jesus to stumble and fall, it again causes people to then question the truth of that gospel. So we need to look at our lives. We need to look at our lives and see that they are consistent day to day, hour to hour. Right? Our Sunday morning in church needs to look the same as our Monday after, afternoon in the office, the same as Friday night with our friends. And so someone who rejects Christ, based, let someone reject Christ based on his perfect life, not on your imperfect one. And so we should ask ourselves, is there any way that I am not consistent with what I say I believe? And Paul reminds us of this commitment as not just a one-time thing, but something that is to be endeavored after throughout one's life. It is a lifetime commitment. Why do we know that? Because how long does he say we do this for? He says, Timothy, I charge you to do this until Christ returns. And if Christ doesn't return in our lifetime, that means we do it until Christ. The Lord takes us home that we die, right? There are no sabbaticals. There are no temporary seasons where we can let loose, right? The top of all our New Year's resolutions every single year should be the same as the next. What area of life am I struggling with? And that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to stop and pause and reflect and think about, Lord, what are areas of my life that might be hindering people from knowing the Lord. They might know what I believe. They might know that I go to church. They might know um, you know, what, uh, that we celebrate Christmas. But do I do things that might interfere, that might cause criticism, not only in my life, but that would be a hindrance to the sake of the gospel? Because if we are chosen in Christ, we represent him. And so how do we do this? I mean, it's a huge task. And so it's, it's hard to say, can we do this in our own strength? And the answer is no. It is only through the grace of God that we can do this. And that's why Paul then turns and says what he says next. Right. He gives us the motivation in verses 15 through 16. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen to him, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He said it is because of who Christ Jesus is that we are motivated and humbled to work to change our ways for him. And Paul highlights his amazing attributes. It's almost interesting that he kind of like changes like, Timothy, I want you to do this. And then he kind of ends up singing this kind of song of praise to the Lord. But it is in those attributes that we can see that we find strength to make the necessary changes that the Lord wants us to make. We quickly look at them. First, he says, bless and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That speaks to God's power, right? King over every king and Lord over every Lord. And it is God's power that allows us to overcome our fears. If we fear a boss or a teacher or somebody in some sort of position over us, right? God is greater. He is king over any king and Lord over any lord. And so we can submit and humble ourselves because we know that God is greater. He can overcome our fears. Paul says he alone has immortality. And that speaks really to God's perspective. Not only his power we are seeing, but his perspective, right? That Jesus has immortality. And that idea of that immortality means never dies. Well, we understand and know that Jesus died on a cross, but that term can also be understood as he who always exists. So instead of thinking about he who never dies is immortality, is he who always exists. And if we can go to a person to our God who has always existed, From the beginning of our time till the end of our time, because God is outside of time, then really we can stop and think about the things that we worry about and the anxieties and the frustrations, the things that cause us so many difficulties in our lives that we can just give it over to the Lord who knows how the story ends and we can trust him through whatever difficulty we're facing, and we can respond with confidence in him. Paul says that he dwells in unapproachable light, and this speaks to God's distinctiveness, right? We can talk about his purity, but really, God is not man. And so sinful man, man can never behold God's glory Because of God's purity. And so since God is distinct from man, then we can stop and ask ourselves, then why am I trying to be like so many people around me? Why am I gravitating towards the culture? Why am I gravitating towards worldly desires when God is not of the world? He is above the world. And because of that distinctiveness, we should be more like our Lord. And as he demonstrated on his life as a man. And finally, Paul says, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And this speaks to God's presence. Right? God the Father has never been seen. The Holy Spirit has never been seen. Maybe manifestations of his presence at different times. But God is always present in our lives. And so whether we think or see or know, God is always here. Right, And so what are some things that we might be doing that we think we can do or maybe not do because we are alone forgetting about God's presence? And so it is all of those things combined, these attributes of God, that helps us respond appropriately. When we have our minds and our attentions drawn to our Lord and how amazing He is and how awesome He is, We can sing out in praise, Lord, it is to you that you deserve honor and it is to you that you have eternal dominion. And we sometimes think about eternal dominion as this kind of like vague kingdom sovereignty over the universe, but that eternal dominion goes into even each of our lives. And when we call Jesus our Lord, that speaks to the idea that Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And so that reverence for God is seen by Paul even after so many years of serving him that he just breaks out in a praise even as he is giving this charge to Paul or sorry to Timothy and so when we think about our testimony, there's certain things that we can do. And it's interesting, uh, our, in our Sunday school class, we just finished uh, wrapping up, uh, kind of looking at the, the book of Acts. And at the very end of Acts, Paul is in Rome and he is in prison. So he's in chains. And the first thing that he does when he goes to Rome is that he calls on the Jewish leaders to come to him. And the Jewish leaders, this is within three days of coming to Rome after three months at you know, sea and being shipwrecked and all these other things that happen. The first thing he does, is he wants to draw the people to him. And when they come, he immediately addresses the elephant in the room, the fact that he is in prison, the fact that he is in chains. And he wants to address that and explain to them that the reason that he is in chains is not for anything that he has spoken of illy, illfully about. The nation of Israel, but he is in chains because of the hope of Israel. And so, as he explains that fact, he kind of sets their minds at ease because they couldn't hear the gospel because of the situation that he was in. And once they told him that they, they had not heard anything spoken poorly of him by those in Jerusalem, those that had uh, had you know had him, I guess, arrested in the first place that they were willing to come back and listen to what it was that he believed. And the next time they came back, they came in greater numbers, and they listened for an entire day about Paul speaking about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from their scriptures. And so it may be hard for us to know, you know, where to start. Paul obviously had something that he could speak about because, again, it was obvious to all that all who came knew that he was in prison and knew that there was something that could be uh, criticized for the sake of the gospel that he wanted to address and address it right there. But sometimes we don't know, right? We might be able to identify certain sins, certain things that hamper our testimony. May, there may be things that we are continually going to the Lord about. It could be impatience, or it could be lust, or it could be anger, it could be complacency, it could be pride. It could be, you know, any one of those things. But unfortunately, it's hard to see our blind spots. And so one thing I would encourage you to do is if you don't know, to ask somebody. So those who are married, you can have a great conversation with your spouse. (laughs) Those that are not married, you could ask your parents, you could ask your siblings. I'm sure they would love to tell you the areas that you need to grow in. But that's sometimes hard for us to do is to say, Hey, is there anything that I do that might come and be criticized for the sake of the gospel? And that's something that we need to face head on so that we can then be able to be a witness for Jesus Christ for the future. And so first and foremost, and this is where Paul really spends his most time in this section, is to guard against damaging behaviors. And what are those things? Timothy, and again, he addressed them specifically to Timothy, and we'll see them come out uh, because he knew him. But if you don't do this first, you're just going to be spinning your tires in the mud for the spiritual impact that you may have for the future. What's the second thing he says? The second thing is be satisfied with your current blessings. I find it interesting that Paul concludes this letter with a charge to the rich. And so in Timothy's day, you were either, you know, the, the idea about rich and poor were pretty stark contrasts, right? You fell into one of these categories. You either lived day to day and worked for your daily bread Or you were more financially stable and you could endure hardships that came your way. And so for most of us, we actually fall into this latter category that Paul addresses in verse 17. We are rich in this present age. And so why does he say those who are rich in this present age? Because those who are in Christ are already rich and spiritually blessed for eternity. But here on earth, financially, we might be all over the spectrum especially on a global scale. And so if we think in in terms of globally, we are a fairly rich society. And so Paul's words can really ring true for us as we think about things that we want to uh, work on when we come to this coming year. And so Paul gives two charges here. He says, first, I want you to tell them to not be haughty. We don't use that word very often, to be haughty. I think actually people who are haughty use that word haughty. But the idea about being haughty means to be arrogant or prideful. And so why would he say this? What is the link between those that are rich, tell them not to be prideful? Well, we could say that, well, obviously those people who are rich, they are naturally arrogant or prideful. But I've personally met people who are wealthy and are extremely humble And I've also met people who are poor and are very prideful or arrogant. And so the rich really differ from the poor in how they are able to understand their sense of financial security. That really is what makes them distinct between rich and poor. And along with financial security, what comes with that? It's this idea of independence, right? If you are able to weather any sort of financial difficulty that comes your way, you feel like you've got your bases covered. You've got the right... Uh, retirement plan, you've got the right savings account, you've got the right insurance, and all of these things insulate you from any difficulty that might find that way to your life. Poor people don't have that luxury, but what comes with having all your bases covered is an understanding or an idea that I am safe. Right, I am safe. I am an island to myself. I am a castle that I've built around myself. And so I am independent. And so there is this understanding that you then put your trust in these things and put your trust in that wealth. And so when you trust the things that have been accumulated in your life, the less you rely on on the Lord and what he provides. You don't think about when, when Jesus said, I want you to pray, give us our day, our daily bread. It doesn't really strike a chord with us too much in our society because often we have an abundance of bread and sometimes the bread gets, goes to waste and we throw it out. But that's just the society we live in. And so that's why when Paul says these things that we can then kind of understand them and take them to heart. Ourselves. It's only when finances are taken away, if you've ever had them, is that when we start to depend on someone or something else. And interestingly, though, it's the way that the Lord has provided through our accumulated blessings, is that there is a tendency then to take those blessings and to make them idols or replace our work with what God is helping sustain us with. And so the more reliant we tend to become on ourselves, the more independent we feel, And the idea of independence separates us from our dependence upon God. And this is why Paul then says, do not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We know that houses and stocks and cash, a steady paycheck, all of these things, right, can be lost in an instant. Or like barns full of wealth, they can be taken from you. Now this isn't to make us like fearful or worry, uh, but to be trusting fully in the Lord that He has provided us with enough. It is a desire for more that we need to guard against. right Paul even addressed this, this a few verses earlier. If you flip back at verse six, Paul says... He says that after people think that they're gaining godliness through um, knowledge and endless discussions and debates, Paul says in verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Right? This is a strong warning That Paul gave Timothy earlier. And knowing Timothy and maybe some of the struggles that he's seen over his life, Paul wanted to take some time and address this with Timothy. But it's the same warnings that he gives those who have wealth and rely on the assurance of wealth, right? Instead of seeking after more, we need to be content with what God has blessed us with. And instead of living for this future uncertainty and what we may gain, we need to be thankful for what the Lord has provided us today. This contentment, Paul says, is great gain. And it allows us to strengthen our trust in the Lord. And so ask yourself, what is keeping me from trusting the Lord? What is keeping me from being content with my circumstances, with the situation that I am today? And so some goals that we make about the future really should have this within our, the context of now. Some of the goals that we make for the future are really sinful if we get to the root of it. Why do I want a, a, a larger paycheck? Why do I want a newer car or a bigger house? Is there something that I'm not content with or satisfied with today and what the Lord has provided me? And so these are all good questions to ask, right? But well, we are all uniquely made and we know that the Lord, again, he's not condemning being rich. He's just saying, do not seek after and crave after more, right? We've been uniquely made and sometimes the Lord wants us to grow by giving us financial wealth and see what we'll do with it. And some of us are grown by having that wealth take away and the Lord's saying, what are you going to do with that? And so it is in these cases that Paul can say that It's the Lord who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It is God who gives us what we need. And so if I stopped and asked you, did you get everything you wanted for Christmas? The answer is yes. You got everything, right, that You got because that is what the Lord had provided through the means of of different people, right? Oddly, we can see this kind of played out with kids, right? When certain kids, right, they're thankful for what they've been given, and some kids are not thankful, and they just want more. But adults can be the same way, right? We see in our children, they're just little people. But we're the same way with our same hearts, our same dissatisfactions, and the same lack of contentment, right? Right? But contentment doesn't mean stagnation. It doesn't mean, Lord, just keep me the way that I am. It just means when you bless me, I am thankful. And when you don't bless me, I'm totally content in being wherever you have me to be able to do the work that you have for me, wherever I am and however it may come. It is Lord who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, finally, Paul advises to bless others with what you've been given. And Paul simply says, to do good. And if we just stopped there and said, what does it mean to do good? You know, what would you think? You might think, well, I'm doing good, you know, or maybe I'm not doing good enough. But fortunately, Paul identifies a clear way in which we are to do good. To do good, how, is to be rich in good works. In the manner that we have been blessed, we are to respond with equal blessings, And Paul says that those that have been financially provided for are to be generous and ready to serve. That idea about generous, right, means to take what you have and give it to others. And Paul doesn't condemn, again, being rich, but he knows that there are things that keep the rich from flourishing spiritually, Why? What is that biggest danger for a person to be rich? We've already established that it is this idea about being independent and not being dependent and fully trusting and content with God. So how does being generous fight those things? Well, there's a few different ways, but we'll just kind of go over them quickly. First, when you come in contact with those that are in need, it puts that contrast between what somebody needs and what you have already been provided for. And then can help us think about how the Lord has, and what the Lord has provided us with, and hopefully will be a sense of uh, encouragement, especially when we look at others who have more than us. When we go and turn our heads and look at those who don't have as much as us, it helps us humble ourselves. Anyone who's been to a third world country understands what that means when you see somebody living with contentment and joy who has very little compared to what we have That it can be an encouragement for us to then want to give to others. Secondly, being generous allows us to encourage other people. When somebody is without, is in want or in need, this generosity can be filled by filling it with a need of something that we can supply. And it doesn't have to necessarily be financial. It can be in your talents, right? Whenever you respond to somebody needing a meal because of the difficult situation that they're in, for whatever reason that is, then you are responding with your generosity and your ability to make or provide a meal. Maybe it's to help somebody move or just give somebody some advice without any sort of compensation. And so when you are doing those things, you are blessing somebody else else and you are encouraging that person and finally generosity allows us to just give away some part of our wealth right wealth is illusion and sometimes when we again think that we control the money that we have or have a you know uh, protection over this wealth just giving it away releases our grasp on that illusion and guess understands that the lord can supply us again with whatever need that we have right? But the qualifier is not just to give, you know, is not to just give some, but it is to give generously. And so how do we understand what it means to be generous? I think it's easy for us to understand generosity when we think, who are generous people? And if we were to stop and think about who are generous people, we can then identify how they are generous. Sometimes they are generous because they give Above and beyond what we might think is normal. And so generosity is going over and above what we think might be customary. Um, A second way that somebody could be generous is that they are thoughtful. They are thoughtful in the ways that they meet a particular need, sometimes even in a way that we might not have thought about that need. Have you ever been blessed by somebody who just says, hey, I felt like you could use this, and you were like, I didn't think about that, but yes, I totally feel like this would be, is a blessing to me. And again, it has all of those things that are wrapped up, that encouragement and that idea of giving something away, but to give generously is somewhat subjective, but we have to kind of think about that in those terms. So what are those things that you can do in order to be generous in small, some small measure? in order to fulfill what Paul is asking. And the other side of the coin to this generosity, Paul also says, but be ready to share. And it reflects a hard attitude that when somebody asks for something that they need, that you can meet that demand, right? There are some who immediately respond to the needs of others and some who think about it and put it off for another day. Paul wants us to be more ready to respond to whatever need that people have. And so it's interesting the link between being above reproach and being generous, right? I would think even those that are not within the church could understand this idea, is that those who are generous are often looked at fondly, even despite some of their shortcomings. It's often a puzzle to me sometimes when I know that people who um, live... Morally questionable lives are very generous with their wealth. It almost is a um, conflict of really their worldview, but it allows you to be able to uh, see them in a different light. One way that you could do this is, right, in our neighborhoods, sometimes we uh, think, about, think different thoughts about our neighbors because we don't have a relationship established. One way to establish a relationship with our neighbors is to just give them something. And you're not bribing them, right? But if you just made something for them, knocked on their door and said, hey, I made this for you, it opens up a line of communication that sometimes was not there before. Think about how you could be generous in order to be able to be a better witness for the sake of the gospel. There are many practical ways we can do that. But a, a person's generosity can see that. Now, Paul says, he finishes something deeper, right, than just some of these practical ideas. He says, not only, you know, uh, be generous and ready to share, because, for what reason? He says, they're storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future, right? Jesus said that we can store for our future treasures in heaven, and Paul says, told the Corinthians the same thing. A person's generosity can add to that reward. And so this charge, really, that Paul is saying is nothing new. And I want us to end by looking at a quick uh, uh, passage in Luke. And so if you turn to Luke chapter 3, I'll kind of summarize it uh, quickly. Because we're running short on time. Now, John the Baptist was the, you know forerunner to Jesus. And he would go preach out in the desert. And it's interesting, the message that he preached would be something that we would think wouldn't be very, um, you know, wouldn't draw people to them. Right? He talked about the Jewish leaders. He called them a brood of vipers. And he warned them that the axe is laid at the root of the trees and that everyone who does not bear fruit is cut down into the fire. So if you're not doing good, the axe is ready to chop you down and throw you in the fire. And so then the people really were responded. They were convicted by John the Baptist's message. And so they asked, well, then what should we do? They have this now what, you know, what should I do with my life? And it's interesting the way that John the Baptist responds. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, Well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors Also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect more than you are authorized to do. And then soldiers asked him, Well, what are we to do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Do you see the advice that John the Baptist gives, right? Anyone who has two tunics will then give one away to somebody who doesn't, right? He wants them to bless others, right, with the blessings that they've been given. That's Paul's third point. For tax collectors, he says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Be satisfied with your current blessings. Do not seek more than you should, but be satisfied with what you currently have. And what about soldiers? I don't want you to extort money, and I want you to be content with your wages, right? So we already see that be satisfied with what you've been given, but... Guard against those damaging behaviors that when people see you, they see you as a threat, not as somebody who is seeking the Lord in their life. And so all three of these are spoken of in this uh, interaction between John the Baptist, right? They're the basics. They're the basics how we should live our Christian life, but they are so counter to what people expect to our human nature that they seem radical. Now, why would I say that? Because how do the people respond to John the Baptist? It says they question in their hearts if he were the Christ. If somebody just said, don't take more than you should, are you the Messiah? I mean, it's almost mind-blowing to think that way. But so many people are accustomed to not thinking that way because our flesh tells us to keep things for ourselves, to do what we want, to desire all that we can and take hold of it. But Jesus Christ is a different way. And when we live that out, we place that at the center of our lives and these things that we can do to understand how the Lord has blessed us. And because he came during this Christmas season, as we think about you know, how we respond to that, we can add very practical means to our lives. Right? The goal is not for us, although we will flourish, but it is not for us, it is for our Lord. But we will experience a flourishing in our life that will make us more joyful, more loving, more influential and more content. And Paul says that those who do these things will take hold of that which is truly life. I pray that we can live more fulfilling, fruitful, and effective Christian lives. And starting with the basics and then seeing how we can infuse them into our plans for the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are so thankful for the work that you've done in our lives. And we just ask, what more can we do? And so I pray, Lord, as we ask those questions, help us to ask difficult questions. Help us to um, not only see the the ways that we need to uh, grow, the ways that we need to shed certain sins in our life, Lord, but that we can take hold of what you have for us. And Lord, help us to be a better witness for this upcoming year. Help us to be strengthened by your word and by your people and help us to be a part of the work that you're doing throughout your kingdom. And so Lord, help us to take hold of these things, apply them to our lives so that we may be better servants of you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.